This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hello, I'm not Kara Swisher. I'm Ezra Klein, editor-at-large Vox.com and host of The Ezra Klein Show. In today for the great Kara Swisher. Today, we're going to play an interview I just did at this year's Code Conference. I interviewed Jonathan Ryan and Erica Andiola, the CEO and Chief Advocacy Officer at Raices. You might remember Raices. They were the legal nonprofit that raised tens of millions of dollars uh, after the Trump administration began separating families at the U.S.-Mexico border. These are remarkable activists who have a real take, not just on the inhumanity, the dungeons of what is happening for us at the border, but also the complicity of the tech world and frankly, a lot of the rest of us in it. This was a quite remarkable interview to do at this place before this audience because I think it, it, it's a genuinely challenging interview to do. It is uh, an interview with people who are not afraid to name names and, and genuinely not afraid to speak some truth to power. Ryan said that the companies working with the U.S. government at the border are enabling literal tyranny and will be proven to be on the wrong side of history. We have seen that from IBM assisting the German government to create their punch cards and keep their trains running on time, from our own Dow Chemical here assisting in the creation of napalm for the use in Vietnam. These were all lawful activities at the time, which have since been found to be unlawful. You can find full coverage of this interview and everything else from the Code Conference at vox.com slash recode. But now let's go back to Scottsdale, Arizona to hear my interview with Jonathan Ryan and Erica Andiola from Raices. All right, this is gonna be a turn. This is gonna be a different kind of panel. So the folks who are gonna join me on the stage in a moment are the leads of Raices. Last June, when the family separation crisis was beginning to peak, a husband and wife who are early Facebook employees decided they wanna donate money to someone to help. And they went online and they found there was an organization in Texas composed of lawyers, it was doing bond work for mothers who were detained. It was trying to reunite these families. They created a fundraiser, an online fundraiser, sent it out to their networks. Soon enough, it raised $20 million. Erica Andiola is a chief advocacy officer of Racist. Jonathan Ryan is the CEO of Racist. They're gonna join me now to talk a bit about what is happening at the border and what tech's responsibility to change it actually is. Let's start by setting the scene a bit. Um, Jonathan, what is the situation at the border right now? Week to week, what are you seeing? Uh, we're seeing a terrible situation that week to week is getting worse. Um, right now, many people might not be following this story, but uh, our government is denying folks who are approaching our border through lawful process of requesting asylum at a port of entry and basically telling them that they need to wait in Mexico 
uh, for the duration of, of their, their court hearings. So we are seeing thousands of uh, women and children from Central America, some of the most vulnerable people on our earth, in our hemisphere, fleeing the most dangerous places on earth outside of active war zones, who are following this instruction that we have been broadcasting as a country for the better part of 75 years. Um, that we are the beacon of hope and freedom across this world. And they're coming here seeking protection. They're being denied and they're being left to languish in the streets, in overcrowded churches, in some very dangerous cities along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and we're seeing a lot of violence. We're seeing people being disappeared. I talked to an advocate last week who, as she was on the bridge trying to help a, a mother and three children get, uh, ask for asylum and were denied, they were kidnapped right in front of her. And she was powerless to do anything about it. Erica... Isn't this against our laws? I mean, what we are seeing right now is that, you know, there's a, there's a big misconception that, like, people are, there's, like, a masses of people coming into the country illegally, right? Like, they're, ca- they're crossing the border. They're, that's not the case. People are literally coming to, like, turn themselves into Border Patrol agents, saying, I'm afraid of going back. Here's my reason. They get, you know, they, they get apprehended, and then their nightmare completely starts then. I mean, it probably was a nightmare even before leaving um, and, and, and through the journey through Mexico. But once they get into the United States, then they start this whole process of requesting asylum into the U.S. And so what they're doing is basically, I mean, they are turning themselves in. They're not necessarily crossing the border and, and just walking into the country. For the most part, majority of people who are, com- who are coming right now are doing it in that, in that way. Right. And that's lawful. That is something yeah. that, that you are guaranteed under American law. It's not just lawful. It is the only lawful way to gain asylum. We hear this bleated out by the administration that folks should be requesting asylum in their home countries. First, there is no mechanism for folks to request asylum in their home country. The Department of State has a presence in those consulates. They don't do asylum. That is done through the Department of Homeland Security, which is an interior agency to the United States. Moreover, to walk into a U.S. consulate while you're in the most violent place in our hemisphere, request asylum, you are basically marking yourself for retaliation in that community. It would be a death sentence for someone to go in and request asylum in a dangerous country and then wait, supposedly, in that state of danger for something to be processed. You have to come to the United States to gain asylum. Erica, something you had said to me that that the two of you are talking to me about backstage was this idea that the border has become a constitution-free zone. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, what people don't realize is that the border is not this thin line in the sand between U.S. and Mexico. Under our government law, the border actually extends up to 200 miles into the United States, which, if you do the geographic math, amounts to about two-thirds of our country. And, and as you approach the border, the power of the executive starts to increase almost to the level of war powers. And um, because it is considered the defense of our country, because we made a decision after 9-11 to take immigration out from the Department of Justice, which has the mandate of seeing that justice is done, into this newly created leviathan of the Department of Homeland Security, which had the mandate of stopping another 9-11. And so we have now conflated these two issues of immigration and anti-terrorism into something that is basically serving to harm vulnerable people who are actually fleeing that terrorism and violence that we are trying to end. And I can tell you how it looks like (laughs) in many ways. I mean, if you guys can actually picture right now, we, a lot of our clients and the people we represent, they're literally kids right now in military camps 
who recently have been denied even playing soccer, or they're about to deny it for them even to play soccer, to be able to have any contact with educators, to teach them in English classes or anything else. We have people who stay in these really cold jail cells that uh, migrants actually call them yeleras or ice boxes. For, um, they're supposed to be there for less than 72 hours. Um, they're staying there for sometimes weeks in cold, freezing jail cells with babies, with children, mothers, human beings. And so as a country right now, we're choosing to use militarized tactics or military tactics basically on families, on people who are seeking asylum or who are seeking a better life or sometimes running from poverty. That is the reality. Um, and so we do have right now to decide whether we want to be that country that is literally having um, concentration camps, in my view, as we've been there and we work with these with this, uh, families, or are we going to actually find solutions to the problems we're seeing in Central America, in, at the border, and in this country, since we're also deporting people and tearing his family apart. Jonathan, what's the role of the tech industry in this enforcement mechanism? The tech industry deserves a lot of blame for what is happening at our borders and, and, and assisting and enabling our government to bring to scale and into more efficiency this uh, uh, devastating, I think, you know, uh, violation of human rights that's occurring on our border and inside of this country. If you look at companies like Palantir, who offer their facial recognition software to ICE, this basically ran a program using Palantir to arrest the sponsors who did come forward to uh, receive the children that were in government detention. They uh, engaged in a pilot program where they would use Palantir to assemble basically like a Facebook for person, ICE's personal Facebook so that they could identify the sponsors, locate them, and arrest them. And they arrested about 400 in a period of a few months, sponsors of children who were in these facilities, uh, which had the consequence of completely chilling any other sponsors from coming forward. We've seen this, we're uh, one of the largest providers of legal services in the country to unaccompanied children who are held in government custody. On any given day, we're providing certain legal services to roughly a thousand children. And when the government engages in these large scale military bases, like the tent city in the desert that took place last year, we're the organization that goes in and provides legal services. And we've seen the length of time that these children spend doubled over the past few years because the government engaged in a shock and awe psyop against those sponsors by arresting a number of them, which has now chilled all sponsors from coming forward. So we've seen a massive decrease in the number of people. These are family members, close family friends, who traditionally came forward, whether they were undocumented or not, to sponsor and take these children out from government custody, um, has completely declined. All right, that's Palantir. That's Palantir. You could talk about Amazon. I, you know, Microsoft. was Microsoft. Hewlett Packard runs the NOC for uh, what is for, the NOC? ICE, the Network Operating Center. Come on, you guys know what a NOC is. I'm, look where we are. We we uh, we, we got a we got a, a, a wide audience, here. of course. Um, you know, you've got Dell that's providing all of the the, the services and 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 help desk to ICE officers um, who just doing basic services. And everybody wants to claim that they are just providing some discrete service. Salesforce, of course, is basically the backbone of the HR and hiring operation. Whose donations you rejected? Very very happily and. 
And uh, because it was, it was not just disingenuine, it was an attempt at, at overt handwashing in response to the, the rightful uprising of Salesforce employees against the fact that they have this $50 million contract with the Border Patrol. I mean, Mark Benioff said to Kara himself that he thought that it was absolutely the right idea to, uh, uh, to work with ICE. And we've heard this line uh, echoed again and again and again from Andy Jassy, who sat in these chairs yesterday, to Brad Smith of Microsoft, to uh, Mark Benioff of, of Salesforce, to Alex Karp of Palantir, saying that it is our role as tech to make sure that this government has access to the best tech in the world, that we are being patriots by assisting our government. This is a lesson, I'm afraid to say, that we have learned in history. Uh, and I feel too young to be kind of the harbinger of this news of, of what our own last century saw in terms of large industrial companies assisting governments under the law at the time to wreak havoc against people. We have seen that from IBM assisting the German government to create their punch cards and keep their trains running on time, from our own Dow Chemical here assisting in the creation of napalm for the use in Vietnam. These were all lawful activities at the time, which have since been found to be unlawful. And when he says here, I was, I was beside myself, quite frankly, when he here was saying that they will do, that there is yeah, no red line. Talking about. Absolutely. That there is no red line, that if it's legal, they're going to do it. Well, excuse me, sir, but my company, thanks to the $20 million that we received, now has numerous lawsuits against the federal government, along with the ACLU. And we will prove in court that these laws are unconstitutional, that they were violating the law when they did this. And if tech wants to walk hand in hand with our government in this experiment in tyranny, then go for it. But we will be here when that music is over and there will be no chair for them to sit when everybody's sitting down. You're seeing the uprising in the ranks of tech engineers who will refuse to work at tech companies knowing that these people who went and became the best and brightest and wanted to use their tech skills to improve the world, who are now coming to learn that they are working for the very instruments of tyranny that right now is being practiced against the other on our borders. All governments dabble in tyranny. That is why we have a constitution. We're gonna take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this to this live interview from the Code Conference with Jonathan Ryan and Erica Andiola. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. The other um, explanation you'll hear on this, if somebody agrees that what is happening on the border is wrong, 
but it's legal, or they say it's legal, or if the government says it's legal, it's legal. The other thing that you'll hear is, well, if it wasn't us, it would be someone worse. At least if it is Salesforce or whomever, the people within the companies believe at least our company has some moral boundaries on what we will do. You don't want it to be the case. The big companies all say no, and instead it's just whoever will be opportunistic enough to walk into that breach. What do you guys think about that justification, Erica? Yeah, I mean, there's two parts to this. Is first, what you're doing to, um, literally create, well, it wouldn't be creating, but it would be enabling this machine of deportations and dehumanization of the border. You're enabling that by, you know, providing your services and not only providing your services. I mean, it's not like, you know, people are just there using Excel sheets from Microsoft. <laughs> They're literally creating systems for eyes to, you know, go and arrest people to find, you know, the, the best way to, um, to, to have, you know, the best databases, et cetera. Um, and so part of it is that, but part of it is also, you know, what are you also doing if your company decides, you know, they come to Raices and says, we want to give a donation, we want to give a gift. Well, <laughs> there's a lot more you can do. There's, you can actually advocate against all of this. You can make sure that you are speaking up and you're saying as a company, as a tech company, first of all, I'm not going to do the job for you. And secondly, I will work my butt off to make sure that Congress changes the laws, that Congress changes what is happening right now and that we elect better people that are not put in children's in cages, and that we ensure that we have an immigration system that is looking at also the humanity of people and not necessarily just bringing the, the best and the brightest. You know, the Statue of Liberty doesn't say, give me your best and brightest. That's just the reality. And so let's push for that. And, you know, we're here, of course, with the, in, in this audience, um, just to also you know, ask you to use your own resources and to use what you have to advocate for the right laws and the right policies that right now should be treating people with more humanity. And I think it's a false premise, I think, to say if it wasn't us, then it would just be someone else. That's literally not the case. It echoes, I think, what was said on the stage yesterday by somebody who said, well, if you don't like our services, just use another service. Well, I mean, excuse me, but there is no other service but AWS that has you know, 200 plus of the security uh, certificates that are required to do contract work with the government. So there isn't another company that the government can go to. But they could create other companies or the government could begin to bring these um, uh, services in-house, right? I mean, another way they could do this is that Congress could decide it needs to appropriate the money for ICE to develop its own massive network of servers and, and so on, and maybe that would be worse. Well, it would certainly be worse. I think that what the the companies right now that are holding the power need to recognize that the government could not do what it is doing now without them. And what we have seen over the past two years, you know, we don't want to exempt for, uh, former uh, administrations, right? Certainly, there's only been one president that has had eight full years with the Department of Homeland Security at his disposal, and that was President Obama. And you can Google us and you can see we were just as strenuously advocating against Obama's immigration policies as we are now. He did build the machine that all Trump had to do was get into and step on the gas. And what we have seen is a scaling up and a quickening of the efficiency of this tyrannical operation under the Trump administration. Lawsuits take about two years, three years to see a decision. In that time period, our government wantonly and openly breaks the law, goading 
lawsuits, knowing that that's going to basically give them two years to do whatever they want. So it's not a matter of the government, you know, of tech pulling out. And the gov- it'll take the government, what, three, four, five years in order to replicate that level of services. So those companies that currently are doing the bidding of the government under this guise of patriotism, that it's our job to do whatever the government, to make our government the most powerful government, instead of trying to beat Chinese tyranny with a form of American tyranny, we need to build tech on the basis of the ideals that did make this the greatest nation in the world. And I, you know, I think that it's clear if Amazon, if Microsoft, if Salesforce, if Hewlett Packard and Dell and all of these folks that are basically the backbone and the real operations of ICE stood up and made you know, a statement and refused to participate, they would end this because the government cannot do it. Moreover, together you have the power to make real and lasting change in this world, particularly in these areas where folks are fleeing from, to where they don't feel the need to flee anymore. You know, I'm Irish. I'm one of my colleagues as well as Irish. You know, when I went home, uh, I was born there. I was born on the way over, but didn't get the cool accent. So when I went home over the, oh, in the 80s, I was visiting literally a third world country. I was going from Dallas, Texas to a third world country. It was palpable and noticeable. Tech has completely revolutionized and changed my country, right? Through its investment, through its education, and through its offering of jobs. So, I mean, why not open up a new headquarters in Guatemala? Why not provide opportunity for coding, for becoming engineers, to these children who, frankly, I've been working with for the last 15 years, are the best, are the brightest, are the most motivated, and wanting to succeed kids that I've ever met. Let's give them that opportunity. You call the operations happening at the border tyrannical, and certainly there are dimensions of it that are, but also people would say, America has a border, countries need borders, they need to be enforced, there is a huge flow right now of asylum seekers beyond what the system, at least is currently composed, can handle. What should be done? What would be a non-tyrannical way of handling this that people could participate in and feel that they were being both lawful and moral? First of all, you know, it's, it's really putting a Band-Aid on the problem, right? We have a bigger problem, and I think most people know that the immigration system is completely messed up. We don't have right now the ability to let, you know, uh, a child, as, as Jonathan was mentioning, who really wants to succeed, who wants to have a better life, who's, you know, myself. I mean, I'm, I'm Mexican. I'm a dreamer. I'm a doctor recipient. And so I usually talk about people in the you know, third, uh, uh, you know, if, if I wasn't. But I came from Mexico. I literally crossed the border with my mom. It took me three days um, to get to the U.S. Uh, from Mexico as a, when I was 11 years old. And so I know what this immigration system looks like because of my personal uh, experience of ICE coming to my own house and taking my mom from, from us, um, you know, when I was 21. And so I know what the system looks like and I know it needs to be fixed. Right now we do have a problem, so we need to fix it. I honestly think that our current president's not going to fix it, he's gonna make it worse. So we gotta make that change. Um, in the current situation, what we gotta understand is that we have a mil- militarized border that is trying to fix the problem by having more military and treating people as if they are in a war zone. The fact is that people are turning themselves into them. People are coming in many times sick or they get sick in the custody of Border Patrol. Six kids have already died in Border Patrol custody in the past few months. Six children. Why? Because again, they're in the ice boxes because they're placed in terrible conditions and there's no medical attention. Like we had one of our clients again, or uh, the people we represent, you know, a child who um, was, he was saying like, I'm sick, I'm sick, give me something. He was giving, I think, a Tylenol or something like that. He ended up dying of the flu. And so 
why don't we try right now to make sure that we are giving more humane treatment to these folks who are coming, turn themselves into the government. And like I said, we need to fix the system so that we have more ways of people coming into the country to seek for a better life that is not just, you know, the best and the brightest. The, 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 the reality, or that's how Trump calls them, but the reality is that there is a lot of people who are great, bright, and amazing who can come here, but there's also people who are running away from terrible conditions, poverty, uh, violence, and everything else, and we can't just look away. We can't just look away because the looking away part is just not working. If it wasn't for our asylum law, then Einstein wouldn't have made it to the United States. If it wasn't for our refugee system, then Sergey Brin's family wouldn't have made it to the United States. If it wasn't for asylum law and refugee law, then Steve Jobs' father would not have made it to the United States. So this is not just some kind of in incidental peripheral part of our country. This literally is how our country was built, what makes us strong, and what projects the image that we believe we project around the world. So I think that there is so much that can be done in terms of assisting those countries that are experiencing these, this violence, all right? I mean, people act as though, we talk about root causes, and everybody wants to go find the root causes in Central America, these gangs and the reason that people are leaving. I think we'd be very uncomfortable to find out that the root causes of the problems in Central America are right here in the United States, right? We have been intervening in those countries for 30 years in devious ways, overthrowing governments, installing puppet governments, not to mention the 150 years that we have exercised the right of the Monroe Doctrine. So there's a lot that we could do to actually help, right? If people think that the narco drugs, the gangs in Central America are selling those drugs to the Central Americans, think again. Go to a college campus, all right? They work, these gangs work lock, stock, and two smoking barrels for us to provide us cheap drugs, cheap sex, and cheap labor. We are their customer. We are the ones who the MS-13 work for. They deal in dollars. They've got more money than the combined GDP of those three countries. So there's plenty that we can do if we are introspective to assist those other nations. Plus, for those people who do come to our borders and to our shores requesting asylum, we need to have a humanitarian response. We need to end the criminalization of immigration. This is civil law, not criminal law. We need to end the privatized prisons that are making billions of dollars off of the commoditization of the human body. It's a return to pre-16th and 14th Amendment days of trading on human bodies. Um, so, you know, we need to start quite respectfully uh, with taking their boots off of the necks of the immigrants and refugees in our country. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be back with Jonathan Ryan and Erica Andiola live on stage at Code. Let's go to audience questions. Hi, my name's Corey Hodo. Uh, I'm a firstborn uh, American. My father was a Cuban refugee that moved here in the 60s. So these issues really resonate with me, and I've been blessed to have a lot of opportunity because he, my grandmother took this chance. So what are two or three different steps that, we can, that you believe can help fix the immigration process uh, that is preventing people from moving here legally? Erica, do you want to take that? Yeah, I mean... We haven't fixed immigration law in decades at this point. The longest we've ever gone. <laughs> and the problem has been that, you know, if you have been in the you know, immigrant rights movement, uh, I mean, I've been around for 10 days, 10 days, 10, it feels like 10, 10 years. And what I've noticed is that the issue has been literally a political football. It's neither, neither party wants to fix it. Um, and and it's, it's frustrating. Republicans and Democrats always blame each other around it. And so we haven't really had the willingness from any party to actually fix the system. So it's been decades where we don't necessarily have, you know, um, as many visas to countries that need visas to come into the U.S. They're, you know, again, they're trying to bring people from countries who 
um, have the most educated, the most wealthy people, well, you know, guess what? Poor people also want to come into the U.S., and we have to have a way to bring them. And so we need to, you know, uh, raise the visa caps. We need to make sure that um, we are actually taking more asylum seekers. Uh, this is the first time this president has actually been president has taken the least asylum seekers probably of any president. And refugees. And refugees. Uh, low. Um, and so, you know, if you're shrinking, shrinking and shrinking the amount of people who can come to the U.S., guess what? If they're suffering in another country, they're probably going to find a way to come. Um, so I think that's, that's one. And again, there's so many <laughs> ways that you, can, you, you need to, a lot of things that we need to do to fix the system. Uh, but definitely rethinking the way in which people can come to the U.S. Um, is, is, is one of them. Um, and I don't know if you want to... I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an immigration lawyer. I've been practicing immigration law for about 15 years. I could tell you a myriad ways that through nip and tuck, you could make significant adjustments to the current law. Um, you know, if you think at what R Ronald Reagan passing the IRCA law, the amnesty law back in 1986, at that time, you know, they were providing legalization to folks who had been in the country for four or five years. If you could prove that you had been in the country since 1971, you could get a green card. Uh, if you could imagine an updated version just of the Reagan law of 1986 brought up today, this would provide a legalization pathway for millions of people who are in this country. There's an interesting application called 10-year cancellation that you can give to an immigration judge, basically showing you've been in the country for 10 years, you've got U.S. citizen family who are going to suffer hardship, you can stay and get a green card. But that's only available to people who are in immigration proceedings. There is no affirmative way to actually present that application to the U.S. government and, and, and actually get on the pathway to citizenship. So there's, there's many, many ways that you could nip and tuck the laws to improve them. But I think, moreover, the current laws exist, and there are actually great laws on the books. The problem is, is that adjudicators have very little discretion, and those who do have discretion are going home and they're watching Fox News, and they're coming back into that adjudicator's desk, completely polluted with the ideas that are being spewed to them, and they're making decisions based on that misinformation. So I think before we look at the law, we need to back up and we need to take a wider approach and we need to reframe the issue of immigration in our country. And we need to start realizing immigrants belong in this country. This, this otherization that we have created is, is a cultural wrong. And I believe strongly as a lawyer that law is downstream of culture. And, and that is why we as lawyers, I think at Raices, have had an awakening over the past five years that unless we are engaged in that cultural narrative and changing that cultural narrative, all of this talk of comprehensive immigration reform is not going to have anything but, fur but further the damage that, that our current laws uh, uh, cause. We need to change culturally how we think about refugees and immigrants in our country. That goes for lawyers, that also goes for tech, because tech, you too are downstream of culture. You know, you are building and you are streamlining and making efficient the culture that we have today, but we've got the wrong culture. We need to focus together on shifting that culture so that we can then build the laws and build the tools that advance not our weakness, but our strengths. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Manoush Zamarodi. I'm host of the podcast, Note to Self. Uh, I'm also a media entrepreneur. I'm also first-generation American. My cousin is the Commissioner of Immigration in New York City, and I'm going to be interviewing the Chief Innovation Officer on stage tomorrow here at Code, which I'm really excited about. I wanted to ask you about the municipal role, the role of sanctuary cities, mm -hmm. and how they, cities here in the United States, are maybe an alternative means to implementing some of the things that you've talked about. That's super important. Thank you so much for that question. 
And, you know, there's, there's just so many things that happen within each city and each municipality, even within counties that a lot of people don't know about. One of the campaigns that we have um, right now in Raices uh, with other partner organizations is to get basically eyes to stop collaborating with local police. There's many reasons. I mean, one reason is that if you're a domestic violence victim and you're afraid to call the police and you're an immigrant, that's completely, that's not feeling, making people feel safe at all. I mean, there's uh, many, many programs like 287G, you can Google this because I'm just gonna throw stuff at you. You know, 287G, Secure Communities. I mean, there's just so many programs that immigration uses to work with the cities or to work with the counties to be able to uh, arrest and deport people um, you know, by using basically the police. And so, the, the, you know, any place that you live at, your police might actually be working as immigration agents without having or shouldn't be you know, having to do that. So one of the things that we're pushing for, and you can always follow us at Raices, you know, Raices Texas uh, on Twitter and Facebook, um, and we will be having a lot of calls to action to get people to really pressure so that every single locality, every city, every county, every state, like California has done really great stuff to detangle the law enforcement machine uh, with the, detangle them from the deportation machine like ICE and, and Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the things. Yeah, that and, and it's about. not just this idea of the police going out and knocking on people's doors or pulling them over and then sending them to ICE. That's, you know, a lot, a lot of, there's a lot of fake sanctuary cities out there, to tell you the truth, that will tell you, oh yeah, we don't, we don't go out and we don't ask people for their papers when we pull them over. We don't go into people's homes and take them. But most of the deportation machine actually happens inside jails, right? And it's when people are arrested either falsely or under suspicion of committing a crime and it's inside the jail that ICE goes. Because, I mean, that's, that's the barrel with fishes are, right? They go in there, they're given complete access to those facilities, even though they're civil law enforcement, they're law but the, the, the law enforcement will, will allow them in. There's info sharing run by tech, thank you very much guys, um, that, that allows shared databases so that ICE can then go and look in at who is in those facilities. And I, just one example, I know we need to wrap up, but I represented a woman in San Antonio. Uh, we, did an, we, we, we helped a, a young man who, was, uh, who had DACA and who was arrested and we were able to successfully get the ICE bus to turn around and bring him back to San Antonio. About two days after that, I got a call from a family because their daughter was at the Pierce Hall Detention Center an hour south in the middle of the desert in Texas. Um, this young woman had DACA, she had a work permit, she had a social security card, right? She was in no way different by status than Erica who sits here with me. She had a year left on her card. This is early in the Trump administration. She worked at Walmart and her cash register came up short at the end of the day. So she was escorted to the manager's office where there was a police officer who then took her to our county police department where she spent about 12 hours before ICE picked her up and brought her to this detention center outside of town. She had been in that detention center for 30 days by the time that I got to meet with her. There was no charging document against her. She was not in the ICE database, right? Nor was she in any criminal database because she was taken by ICE before she saw any judge, right? So even the city that arrested her and the county where she was detained had no idea that she existed because she was taken from their jail before justice was offered to her. Right? She was sitting in a dungeon in South Texas in 2017. We have dungeons in our country where we are putting the young people who are helping to make our country. And she got out, thankfully, I had a conversation with the ICE agent. I explained to her very nicely that we had every news station on speed dial and that they would be all arriving within a few hours. I drove that girl home 
that day from that detention center. She was released so quickly. She then went and got a lawyer and she was found innocent because it was a simple mistake at the cash register at Walmart that led to her arrest. So because her cash register came up short at Walmart, she spent 30 days in a dungeon in Texas. In no government database, nobody knew she was there. Jonathan Ryan, Eric Andiola, thank you very much. All right, that's the interview. Thank you again to Jonathan and Erica for joining me on stage. Thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Ezra Klein. Recode Decode's usual host, Kara Swisher, is at Kara Swisher. Our executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. And our producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, share it. And you can, of course, always find my work and my interviews at The Ezra Klein Show or also over at The Weeds. Make sure to check out Recode's other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and The Land of Giants. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie, And thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Kara Swisher and I will be back on Friday with another interview from the Code Conference. Tune in then.